Hello and welcome to this week's Tez Effie podcast. My name's Kate Parker and I'm here with Julia Balgatai. This week's been a very exciting week for the Effie sector because we got quite a mention in the Queen's speech, was, which obviously we had we had been expecting it. Um, it was trailed early in the week, but it's not a usual occurrence for the, for the sector, is it? No, it was very exciting. I mean, what is more exciting than the Queen talking about Effie? I mean, that's all good things in, in one sentence right there. So uh, there was a lot of excitement in the build-up to it uh, once it sort of became known that it was likely to feature in the speech. And then the actual mention in the speech, of course, was very short. It's literally, you know, a sentence. A sentence. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, still, you know, we'll take that. It's it's better than nothing. I don't know. Do you remember ever it being mentioned in the Queen's speech before? I no, certainly don't. Not at all. I think obviously it's been, you know, it's not unusual for it to be mentioned in, um, well, especially all of Rishi Sunak's statements over the past year or so of, of heavily you know we have been mentioned more in them but the actual queen speech especially when actually education is often just a line in that speech was so much you know with all the other announcements for that to kind of really heavily feature fe and actually schools i think there was one line about um catch up for early years or something but other than that schools didn't get mentioned at all which um is not is really normally the other way around so i think it it does kind of signal a bit of a, a bit of a sea change i think it kind of shows that you know what what we all were hoping that fe will be kind of a more prominent um as we you know go through our skills-led recovery from covid well indeed and and you know once you go through the actual documentation that was published alongside the speech there's a bit more detail although you know it also is when it becomes apparent how little of that is actually new in the end you know an awful lot of it is implementing the white paper and putting through what you know what the white paper set out whether it's more powers for the education secretary to intervene when colleges fail but also obviously the lifetime skills guarantee which the prime minister has, has become very keen uh, to talk about and and obviously which was you know promoted very heavily by Gillian Keegan on the day of the queen's speech in all the interviews she did as well <laughs> in those interviews at least where she was asked about her actual brief and uh, not id cards and and voting um, skills accelerator, all these things that we've now been hearing about for a few months um, were then set out as, you know, will be included in the Skills and Post 16 education bill when we see that. So all of that is great, um, but it's also fair to say that there was very quickly then some caution from people in the sector, you know, whether that is David Hughes, who is, you know, keen to stress that none of these things are free, and then also um, Joe Grady from UCU, who uh, was talking about you know, FE pay and uh, how all of these things are great and the focus on FE is great, but actually what is needed is a, a pay deal for the sector that is, you know, is what, what staff in the sector need. Completely. Priority must be the sustained investment in the sector and fair pay for college staff, not extending a disastrous student loan system to colleges, was her quote. Which leads us neatly to a chat that you had last week with David Russell from the ETF. Yeah, and do you know it, I really do the pay gap between schools and FE staff is always something that's just I, I still can't get my head around it I don't understand it and I don't understand why it's that way you know last summer when the schools it was announced you know it was you know a massive pay rise for school staff but there was a, a national pay rise for school staff and we figured out that the gap was about nine thousand pounds between an average school teacher salary and an average FE lecturer salary and nine thousand pounds is such a lot of money and it really does 
just confuse me. And obviously, David Russell feels very strongly about it too. Um, so he said that the pay gap between the two was indefensible. And he too talked about the skills for jobs white paper and saying, you know, he was really pleased that obviously the, the ETF is all about teaching and training and things like that. And he was saying he was really pleased about the outstanding teaching element of the FE white paper that talks about the need, um, you know, recruitment, training and development in FE. Um, but he was saying you can't without those three things are really important but the fourth thing you need to talk about is pay um, and that that needs to be addressed too and he was saying you know it's hard because they at at least need to be matched with school teachers Um, he said there wasn't really a good excuse for that pay gap and then he was saying that there needed to be um, you know he talks about kind of the prestige of FE and attracting people into the sector and if you really do want um you know people industry industry people to come into the sector they're not going to come in if they can get paid above a way above what you would as a teacher in fe in industry so it's really about making it an attractive you know an attractive route for people i mean so you you know you need to be able to live off your pay right first point <laughs> yes. that'd be great if, if you can live off your salary but then also it needs to be better than what you would get somewhere else and obviously you know what we hear every week in fe heroes is how much people love working in fe and that's great but if you could easily be earning you know 30 percent on top of that if you just moved into a slightly different education institution if say you're an english or maths lecturer or if you go back in industry you know you could exceed that by a really long shot you know whether you look at engineering or even trades you know plumbing carpentry these people can make a really good living out in out in the free world. Um, you know, why why would they come and teach? It's not an easy job teaching. No, and it's the respect as well, isn't it, that goes alongside it. I think the, the, the gap in pay, t- to me, signals a lack of respect. And so why yeah, would you come right. into a position that you don't think is respected, a profession that you think is not respected? Um, it's all very well. And I, I do agree with Joe Grady. You know, it's all very well saying that FE is important and putting it at the heart of everything. And that's that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. But equally, pay staff what they deserve to be paid as a basic. And then, you know, that gets us back to where's all that money going to come from? How much money do colleges really have to invest in that way? You know, I I think there are very few college leaders who wouldn't want to put more money into staff pay if they felt they had it. Um, So, you know, is there going to be a a more sustainable funding settlement for the sector at a time when the country, you know, undoubtedly needs investment in all sorts of areas? Uh, You know, but it... You can't get away from the fact that it probably is required. You know, more investment is needed. And Gillian Keegan is really keen on stressing over and over again that there's all sorts of new money going into FE. But it's also quite specific pots, you know, whether it's for T-levels or, you know, there there hasn't been that big making up for 10 years of funding cuts investment. And, you know, arguably, it's probably what's needed. Yeah. Right, we'll try and get off our soapboxes now. (laughs) I like this particular soapbox. (laughs) And talk about... um, There was another launch this week in the world of FE, wasn't there, Julia? There was, yes. So Pearson um, have launched a forum which will look at the growing inequalities that have been created by COVID. Uh, Some of those inequalities obviously existed already, um, but have been made worse in many ways by COVID. And so the forum will look at some of that... uh, and I had a chat with Anne, the chair, and Cindy about how that will work. Cindy, if I could maybe start with you. Tell me a little bit about this forum that you're launching this week. 
Um, so um, we're delighted uh, to have Anne um, chair a forum that we're launching. And the background behind the forum is really um, all of the evidence that's out there about the impact COVID is having on um, people across our society. And the point uh, or the evidence really pointing to that those that are disadvantaged um, the amplification of that disadvantage as a result of COVID um, is really exponential. And so the idea behind this forum is for us to look at some of that evidence, but then also really work with um, a forum of uh, panel experts and people who are experts in the field um, to really say, what can we be doing to really um, mitigate the impact of this and and for us it's really crucial in terms of how that also then links with um, learning and skills um, because we don't and it's and I shouldn't be stealing her words but act now then actually we're going to be living with this for decades and be talking about the impact in 50 years time and that's not good enough. So Anne you are chairing this why did you want to be involved with it? Well, f further education, um, education generally and training is a passion. I was fortunate enough to be minister with responsibility for that when I was in politics. And I think that um, it's had a lasting impact on me. And that's particularly actually with a background as a nurse, because the one thing that correlates extremely well with the public's health is their access to education and training. So if you like, for me, this is about two of the things that are very important to me, how people do, how their health and mental well-being is, and their chances, their life chances. And why is it so important that we do this now? Because we know that, that we already know there has been an impact from COVID on particularly um, disadvantaged groups. We know that there are inequalities in education and training, and the danger is, is that COVID, and the early evidence suggests that it is, is widening those inequalities. There is no time to lose. Every month that somebody is without a job has a disproportionate impact on the length of the time they will be unemployed. In other words, if you're out of work for six months or a year, your chances of getting a job are greatly reduced. And I understand entirely government action is sometimes slow, legislation is sometimes slow, it's sometimes slow to get the money through. But you know, if you want to save money five years from now, then you government, you regional organizations, you employers need to act now. That one cannot stress how important it is to act now. So Cindy, can you tell me a little bit about how the forum will work? How will it sort of conduct itself and what are you hoping will come out in the end in a few months time? And I don't like to tell you, but you are on mute. I'm on mute. Apologies, I'm on mute. So, so the way we're structuring the forum is that um, we've got a series of five um, meetings um, and at each meeting, we will have expert witnesses. And what we're looking to do is to really drill down at the, uh, the different areas of inequality in our society. Now, it's vast. And so what we're doing is 
really homing in on, on three or four key areas, um, but obviously having a mind on intersectionality across that. So we're really looking at the impact on young people, the impact on women, um, the impact on um, the BAME um, community, but then also we want to look at regional variations. But what we're really interested in from the evidence session is what is what are what is the impact of widening participation what's the kind of economic cost what's the social cost but then what are the things that are working and good practice that is emerging so that we could influence and help to bring that into the conversation to look at how we can mitigate the impact and i think you know going back to learning and skills there's huge transformation happening in vocational and technical education so how do we make sure that we flex that for you know, the right sectors emerging with where there's skills gaps, um, but also the right type of learning in terms of bite size and module and, and digital so that you're really helping young people and adults to really access and, and make progress really um, as they come out of COVID. And is there going to be recommendations at the end, a report at the end? What are you hoping for? Yeah, so we, we hope that at the end of each evidence session that we will um, do a thought leadership piece. Um, so what we want to do is have some momentum and not wait till the end, um, uh, together with some, some um, you know, video content from the expert witnesses, but also the wider panel. And the idea is that in November, we'll pull all that together and issue a report that will really... Um, talk to findings rather than recommendations, because as Anne always says, recommendations sometimes just get filed in a shelf, but it's actually, what are the things that work? What are the actions? What are the things that we've seen? And us really try to amplify that. And Anne, how do you make sure then that it doesn't become another document that sits on a minister's shelf somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that it's not just another report that sits on a minister's shelf. I think highlighting the findings is quite important. Um, calling on government to do things doesn't always work. What you need to do is to get um, a body of support behind you to say these are the things that matter. And I think this is what this piece of work will do, and we're doing it as we go along. So do we really care if lots of young people are unemployed? If you asked individuals on the street, they would probably say, yes, of course I care. But actually, we want to sway the public opinion behind the facts, the impact of COVID in terms of death and illness has not been equal. Some people have been more adversely affected by, by COVID as a disease. The results of COVID will also be unequal. So we want people saying, actually, this isn't fair, this isn't right. We need to put in place measures that mitigate the impact on certain groups of people. We've picked three, as Cindy has said, um, young people, people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds and women, because the early evidence is that those, have, those groups have been adversely affected. So we'll start with those, but I think there will be, over the next couple of years, a great deal more work going on to delve deeper into that. And so obviously a lot of our listeners are real experts, are people who deal with these three groups that you mention on a day-to-day -day basis. If they have something that they want to contribute, are there ways for them to do that? 
There are, there are ways. And I know Pearson would be pleased to hear from anybody who's got any thoughts. And as you say, there, there are an awful lot of experts. The question is, and, and we've had our first session today, and I think what's quite interesting is how you pull all the little constituent bits together to come up with measures that are easily accessible, easy to reach, that people understand and that makes sense. And that's what's really important. And we will certainly keep you posted uh, on that uh, at TESS. And uh, you've already, will have already read Anne's uh, piece earlier in the week on the forum and what it will do. And there'll certainly be more over the next few weeks to come. So thank you, Anne and Cindy, for filling us in on that. And we'll speak to you about it again very soon. Oh, it's brilliant to see Anne Milton back, isn't it, in the um, in the public eye, being passionate about FE, doing what she does best. She's certainly not lost any of her passion for FE, that, that much is fair to say. <laughs> and another, I spoke to another passionate woman about FE this week. So I spoke to Julie uh, Nugent, who is the um, Director of Skills and Productivity at the West, Midland, West Midlands Combined Authority. So they are one of the mayoral authorities who have devolved... Um, budget for adult education skills and she was talking to me about everyone's favorite topic at the moment the adult education clawback um so i'm sure all of you will know this but just in case you need a quick refresher um early in early april the government announced that 90 percent would be set as the threshold for the adult education budget last year it was at 68 percent because of covid um and there has been I would say, say, say outrage across the sector that this means that colleges are going to be losing millions. Um, but actually, because of the way devolution works in the West Midlands, they set their own rules for these things. And she was very clear to me that colleges and providers in the West Midlands would not suffer from the same clawback. She said there was no rigid rule on this and that they were really keen to work with colleges around issues and um, in delivery and come up with solutions together um you know I do, I do think it kind of just show the power of devolution in that you can have that close relationship to colleges um, and to your providers that you just don't get in government because you're you know 10 steps away from them yeah that's um, right so yeah so she was you know she was absolutely brilliant and here is a little clip of her talking about the decision from um, West Midlands. I mean I think there's two things going on I think clearly the pandemic's had a massive impact but but colleges and, and training providers have responded really really well so we've got to be cognizant of it and understand the issues but it is still public money so I think there's a valid conversation to have and what we've had with all of our colleges and providers um, what have you been able to do so most have shifted online one or two have struggled and and you know we always encourage the approach to come and talk to us you know if you're open and transparent with us we've got time to work together on solutions so you can't do x but maybe you could do y what we don't want is what we've seen in the past um the kind of um poor behaviors of i'm struggling to spend my money therefore i'm going to subcontract it all out and buy up a load of crappy stuff so we'll, we'll draw down my allocation <laughs> we'll protect jobs and there's a reason my colleges do it but doesn't really add any value. Don't do that, talk to us. And, and if needs be, we're not gonna snap money back off you because it, it just drives poor behaviors. And this is the bit about implementation. No one sets off policy that says, I want to see an increase in subcontracting, lots of, you know, out of region doing lots of um, level one employability courses just to hang on. No one sets that, but that's the, the kind of unforeseen consequence. So what we're saying is that we know that we've worked in the sector, we get why people do that so we don't want to destabilize you so our commitment is we'll work with you um 
and actually in a couple of cases what we've had people say do you know what we're not going to spend it this year so can we give that money up this year but can you protect it next year in our baselines because we think we'll be able to recover the position so you were like yeah that makes sense seems good reasonable argument we'll talk to you next year to make sure and and just that we would say the ability to have grown-up conversations with the sector recognizing their issues recognizing that most people want to do the right thing of course we have to have safeguards in place because not everyone does and it is public money but you know again we've got a, a team that, <laughs> that just keeps an eye on things so it, you know in covid we we agree i think we want the first regions to say that we would pay people on profile rather than actual some of our training prizes in the first few months and that was fine that was the right thing to do and actually an awful lot of, of providers ended up delivering at least as much if not more than but for those that didn't you know we had a look at accounts made sure that no one was getting <laughs> ripped off in the way that you know they weren't letting staff go that people kept to their side of the bargain so we, we go into this with our eyes wide open we you know we try to understand provider behavior we try to manage risks but we do it in a way that hopefully is, is much more collaborative and as we say it's, it's kind of adult to adult rather than please you know don't do this and I think there's a big lesson for devolution here, whether we talk about devolution or, or regional working or, or whatever. Uh, and I say this from having been in a, a government department, the further away you are from it, the greater the risks feel. So the more um, steps you put in place to manage that risk. So you end up, and, and you've all been there with a, you know, a big provider, college is caught doing stuff and, and it's some poor person in Whitehall carries the can for it. And how did they know? And I think that's where devolution means you could have a much closer collaborative relationship with your provider base. But it also allows you to take managed risks in a way that encourage and enable innovation and, and doing the right thing rather than here's some money. And don't worry, it's all getting spent on unemployed people, but on the wrong thing because it's it's been so controlled. So I think, you know, for us, and I would, I would argue for MCAs across the country, um, we won't always get it right all of the time, but we're a lot closer. We're... A, you know, to understanding our, our providers, our communities and our employers in ways that enable us to just do things a bit more flexibly, still in line with policy. And I think, you know, um, even on recent economic recovery things, you know, we're all desperately trying to give people skills to get into jobs. There's no fundamental difference of opinion about that, but it's, it's just freeing up the sector and, and us to work within that rather than well you better not do this you better not and actually just in case you better and, and before you know it you can't do anything and then we cannot possibly finish this podcast without talking about our favorite frenchman fred from first dates who's come out as a clear fe advocate this week um, wow that was great wasn't it oh it just is i mean i have to say snap masters is absolutely brilliant i would encourage anybody to go watch that program i absolutely love it um and i really do like fred anyway but it was really nice to see him tweeting this week about obviously what he's tweeting about is actually about a very serious topic um about um the hospitality industry and he said that they were walking into a skills and staffing crisis crisis that has it's never seen before i mean it's really interesting isn't it because he also makes the point uh, quite clearly in his tweets that you know, it has always been an industry that you can walk into, you know, without any training, you can walk in and you can, you know, make your way up from, you know, washing pots to becoming a chef. And you can make your way up from, you know, Saturday shifts to being a front of house manager. And all of that is great. But he then talks really eloquently about the importance of catering colleges and, and the great training that the hospitality industry does. And, you know, obviously, you and I are big fans, because we love a good college Lunch. restaurant 
uh, always open to invitations if anyone is listening. Um, but, but, you know, it is a really important issue, particularly when, you know, we will be seeing most likely fewer people from the EU coming over to work in, in hospitality. And there was already a big concern around the skills gap in hospitality. And he makes those points really well. Yeah. And he says as well, you know, what we need is a coalition of willing professionals, education specialists, the Treasury and education departments working together towards a common goal. Um, he's clearly wants some sort of, you know, strategy and upskilling UK homegrown talent. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, he had he had a lot of response, um, you know, some of our chef friends at different colleges in the UK and in, um, in England and in Scotland, you know, responded and so, the, so one one chef um, at Coventry College, James Brook, he said two colleges in the West Midlands are due to close their catering provision by the summer. Unfortunately, the one I work for was one of them. At a point, it was one of the biggest catering colleges in the country, and it's now been reduced to nothing. It's just it's just so sad, isn't it? And I think it's something that's not really discussed very much. And actually, it is something. Who doesn't love going out for dinner at a lovely restaurant and being fed, you know, gorgeous food? It's something that will affect all of us. Um, but just no one's really talking about it. So props to Fred, to First Dates Fred for raising it and using his kind of, you know, you know, superstar voice to, um, to Absolutely. talk about and it. Absolutely, and it, you know, gives us an opportunity to talk about it as well, which is always great. Yeah. And include a lovely picture of him, I must say. So quite, quite. <laughs> our art department had fun choosing that one. <laughs> and so on that lovely note, we will leave it there for this week. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you.